Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. Then children were, were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and, and went away. And behold, a man came to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, All this I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will, will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now this week you may have been following the news story of the search for the escaped prisoner, Daniel Khalif. And there's of course much we don't know. We don't know his motives. There's been lots of speculation in the news. But in simple terms, it's a story of a young man seeking to save himself. Facing a trial, he'd seized an opportunity. But as the police closed in, not possible. And when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, to matters of God and sin and eternal life, well, it's very easy to have the same attitude. This morning, we meet a man asking Jesus a question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And this is a man who's alert to his need for salvation. He's a man who wants eternal life, but he thinks he needs to save himself. And Jesus wants to teach us this morning that 
that is not how the kingdom of heaven works. So we're in chapter 19 of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is in Judea. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And he's going to die on the cross, to rise again and to establish the kingdom of heaven. And in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom of heaven, well, it refers to God's glorious rule, um, the glorious rule of Jesus Christ, God's anointed king. To enjoy life in the kingdom of heaven, well, that is to surrender to his good rule, having a place at the wonderful wedding banquet to come when he returns and his kingdom comes in all its fullness. And by this point in chapters 19 and 20, well, the sense is that this is imminent. Jesus is nearly there. And so he wants his disciples to understand how the kingdom works so that they, back then, and us now, might accept it on his terms, on God's terms, and enter. And we'll see this morning that God's terms are radical because entry to the kingdom of heaven is not something we can accomplish ourselves. If you want a key verse for this morning, it's verse 26. You can see it there. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And I want to suggest that everything else we'll see this morning, all these encounters that we'll read about, are illustrating and explaining that key point. And so the question is, will we accept Jesus' word about the kingdom? Or like the Pharisees last week, will we harden our hearts? So we have three points this morning. The first is the key principle. Jesus welcomes nobodies. And then we have a case study, the sorrow of a somebody. And finally, the plain lesson, the way to life for anybody. So the key principle, verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Here we have what seems to be a crowd approaching Jesus. And perhaps we could imagine the scene. There are children on shoulders, maybe, being led by the hand. Maybe some of them sort of being ushered forward by a parent. And their hope is that Jesus will bless them. But then Jesus' disciples step in like bouncers guarding the VIP enclosure. Not you. They assume Jesus won't be interested in these children. And that is a bit surprising because just one chapter earlier, Jesus had taught them about children. So if you flick back to uh, chapter 18, just one page back, chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has been clear. The way to come into the kingdom of heaven is to come like a child. And to come like a child, well, that is not just to come innocent. That's sometimes the assumption, to come like a child is to become innocent. I've read some writers making that suggestion, and you have to think, has the author met a child recently? Children, like adults, well, we're all sinful. It's not about innocence. But to come to Jesus like a child is about coming in humility. It's coming conscious of dependence and need. That's the picture of children. They're dependent. They come and they need. People today 
often seek to live their life through their children. You get the kind of soccer mums or the little emperors. But in Jesus' day, children did not carry any social status. They were social nobodies. And so here the disciples think, back in chapter 19 now, why would Jesus be interested in them? And so often we can think like the disciples too, can't we? That approach, that we have to approach Jesus with our spiritual CV held up and complete. Or as if coming to the kingdom of heaven is like approaching membership of a club where we're going to have an interview or we need to show our handicap. On the bookstall is this really helpful book by the author Ray Galea called Nothing in My Hand I Bring. And it's particularly helpful in clarifying the differences between Catholic teaching and the gospel Jesus proclaimed. And at one point, he recalls the story of running a lesson in a secondary school. And he asked the students, if you were to stand before Jesus and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? Well, here's what he writes. I got them to write down their answers for the sake of anonymity. Some wrote, I don't know, or no reason why he should let me in. The majority, however, appealed to their good works in some form or another. I've tried hard all my life to be a good person. I was good on earth. Or I've gone to church every week. And we can be so programmed to think this way that even if we recognize ways in which we've made a mess of things, well, we still look for something to write on that CV. At least I'm not as bad as. Well, Jesus shows his disciples here in these verses that he really means what he said in chapter 18. That you don't need to be a spiritual somebody to enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom belongs to those who realize they're spiritual nobodies. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And this is not saying we're to see ourselves as worthless. Jesus has just said a few verses earlier, verse 4, that man and woman are made in the image of God, profoundly valuable, of infinite worth and dignity. And the people bring the children for his blessing. And that's the beauty of the scene. Jesus says, come like a child, humble, dependent, recognizing we're spiritual nobodies, but valued and welcomed. But the point is we don't need to save ourselves. And in fact, we're now going to see a case study that shows us we cannot save ourselves. So it's our second point, the sorrow of a somebody. Verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Suddenly onto the scene comes a somebody, and he's got a good CV. Verse 20, speaking of the commands Jesus gives, he says, All these I have kept. So this is the sort of man the disciples would have rushed to the front of the queue, straight through the VIP guard. He's the sort of person we might meet in the city. He does the right things. He's the one who closes deals. He's the one who delivers the projects. But what is striking is his uncertainty when it comes to eternal life. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? His assumption is that he needs to do the right deeds to enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he's left with the agonizing question, have I done them? Have I done enough? And Jesus' reply immediately begins to challenge his thinking. Verse 17 And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who's good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. 
Jesus picks up on that word good that the man says. And he says there's only one who is good, and he's referring to God himself. And so as the man asks the question, Jesus starts to show him that whatever good deed he may do, they'll always fall short of the pure goodness of God. And God has revealed what his goodness looks like. And so Jesus said, if you'd enter life, keep the commandments. And it's at this point, but if the man was beginning to grasp what Jesus was saying, perhaps he'd be then asking, well, if there's only one who is good, well, what hope have I got? But his assumption is he needs to save himself. And so he asks, which ones? And Jesus quotes from the Ten Commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourselves. The Ten Commandments were given by God as he made himself known to Israel, having rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And even noting that order just gives a hint that the man's not on the right track. Salvation for Israel came before the commandments, not through the commandments. And as Jesus quotes them, maybe you noticed he only quotes five of them. And he adds one that's not in the Ten Commandments from Leviticus 19, a sort of summary. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what we see is that these commandments, well, these are the ones to do with relationships with other people. And the ones about our relationship with God are missing. Well, has the man kept them? Back in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus has shown how far-reaching these commandments go. Not committing adultery, well, not even thinking a lustful thought, says Jesus. But the man seems to reply with sincerity, and he says, all these I have kept. But he wants assurance. All these have I have kept. What do I still lack? If we were to go down to East London Mosque and perhaps ask the imam, what do I still lack? Perhaps the answer would be, well, have you been on pilgrimage yet? Or if we were to ask on the office floor or in the classroom, the general assumption would be, well, there must be a good work you need to do. Do more good things. But Jesus says, verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now Jesus is not saying charity is the answer. What Jesus is doing is he's exposing the man's inability to save himself. And we see that just from the next verse when we see how the man responds. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus has just asked the man to do something he can't do. And he's deeply saddened. It's like he sees eternal life beginning to float out of grass like some sort of helium balloon. Well, what's going on here? What we see here is the sorrow of somebody who wants to save themselves and their inability exposed. Remember how Jesus left out those five commandments that relate to love for God himself? The first four, have no other God before me, make no idol or image, do not take the Lord's name in vain, observe the Sabbath, and also the tenth, you shall not covet. It was a gaping hole in the list. But did he actually leave them out? Look at verse 21 again. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
It seems that with this call to go and sell and come and follow, well, Jesus brings all those commands to bear. In his kindness, he exposes the man's covetousness. He wants eternal life, but he loves money. And he can't go and sell, even for treasure in heaven. And in his kindness, Jesus exposes the man's inability to love the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He just can't bring himself to come and follow. It's a case study of a somebody. He's sincere, he wants eternal life, but he thinks he'll save himself and he can't do it. There's only one who is good. And so Jesus turns to his disciples to make the lesson plain. And this is our third point, the way of life for anybody. Verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. For Jesus to say this would have been a shock to them. The man who had approached them looked like a model Israelite. He was top of the class, front of the queue, a spiritual somebody. He was pious, law-keeping, and he was rich. And to have wealth in first century Jewish culture was taken as a sign of God's blessing. And yet Jesus says, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And in fact, he pushes it further. Verse 24, again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And that is such a vivid image. I did some research on the measurements of camels And a camel sounds somewhere around two meters tall at the shoulder and weighs roughly half a ton. So we're talking about an animal that's about the height of this pulpit and the size of this stage. And then there's a needle and the eye of the needle. Well, the point is obvious. The camel is not going through, not pushed, not squeezed, or any other way you can imagine. It's impossible. And the disciples get what Jesus is saying Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And their logic is simple. If the guy who's at the front of the queue can't enter, well, what chance do the rest of us have? Who then can be saved? And Jesus gives the key lesson. Verse 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God... All things are possible. Everything we've seen up to now is illustrating this point. And the question is, will we accept this? When it comes to salvation, when it comes to eternal life, when it comes to entering the kingdom of heaven, on our own it is impossible. Personal performance, the spiritual CV, being somebody, self-salvation is not the way. And neither is some kind of hybrid, a sort of me and God collaboration. Roman Catholic doctrine teaches that God gives grace, but it's grace given to help a person live well enough so that they can do good things to be justified. As Ray Galea puts it, the underlying theme expressed at every point is the human desire to participate and contribute. And the idea is similar to the teaching of a guy called Pelagius, a heretical teaching in the 4th century, he came up with the catchphrase, you do your best, God does the rest. And Jesus says, no. It's impossible for anyone to save themselves or contribute anything to their salvation. Many of us will know Charlie Screen, who served uh, here in this congregation for a number of years and a great friend to many before being appointed rector at All Souls Langham Place. And I remember seeing him illustrate this point 
I had a student mission week talk, which was at All Souls, as it happens. And he was climbing a ladder up to the balcony, um, up and down one of the front pillars, and he was sticking names on the wall. And the question was, who's good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven? Who's going to be higher? And so Charlie was running up and down the ladder, Hitler down low, Mother Teresa up high. And then the question, well, where is the entry line? And the big visual point, the line is not horizontal. It's vertical. Only one is good. So who then can be saved? With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And these are vital words. They're words that get right to the heart of the good news of the kingdom of heaven, to the heart of the gospel. They're words that echo through scripture, right from Abraham and the covenant, even before, right through the words of God's promise, I will do it. We read earlier in Genesis 18 about Abraham and Sarah. God promised that through their descendants, he'd gather a people and bless the nations. But Sarah was barren. And beyond the age of conception, God's promise seemed so impossible that Sarah laughed. And we read, didn't we? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And then Isaac was born. And Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy that starts with Abraham and goes to Isaac and runs right through to Jesus, the Christ, God's anointed king, sent to save. See, what is impossible with man, with humanity, we can't save ourselves, is is possible with God. He does it all. Accomplished through the work of his son, our saviour. There is only one who is good and the Lord God himself has come in the person of Jesus and he has died on the cross in our place that we may be washed clean of sin, made perfect before God's sight. The word is justified and welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. It's all God's work. And so there's absolute assurance. Come like a little child. It doesn't depend on us. It's a gift. It's what the Bible calls grace. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. But then Peter has a question in these final few verses. Verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And I wonder what we make of this question. As Peter begins, uh, really he's just stating the facts. They have left everything. And in his reply... Jesus gives great assurance that to come to him like a little child really is worth it. Verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. To follow Jesus will be costly. Jesus said we'll take up our cross and follow him. But it will be always worthwhile. Jesus speaks of a new world. He speaks to the 12 apostles of a a particular role they will play. He speaks to all who come to him like little children of the great blessing of being part of his family. He's building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail. He's gathering his people. And it's a family shaped by the cross where love service, forgiveness, and reconciliation are known. A wonderful blessing. 
But perhaps it's the second part of Peter's question, which we're not sure about. What then will we have, he says. And I think the way Jesus corrects Peter just is helping him understand that the cost he's counted to follow Jesus is still not some kind of down payment. It's not a transaction. We will count a cost as we turn to follow Jesus. It's a decision to surrender to him and let him be Lord. We may face hostility. But counting the cost is not what saves us or earns us blessings. Salvation is all God's work. And the blessings of his kingdom are his gift of grace. And I think verse 28 then underlines this. Verse 28 is unique in Matthew's account of this conversation. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man, uh, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And I wonder if just with the imminence of the coming prosecution of Israel in chapters 21 and 22, and Jesus arriving at Jerusalem, where that old establishment will be judged and the kingdom of heaven established. Well, Jesus is saying this here because when his kingdom is unveiled and Peter and the apostles have this role of sitting on these thrones and judging the 12 tribes of Israel, it will be clear that the approach the rich young man has been taking is entirely wrong. He's a model Israelite, but he's a man of man-made religion, of self-salvation, and it will be shown to have failed, and Peter will see it, and he'll even deliver the verdict. God's salvation, that salvation is all God's work and not ours. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And that is how the kingdom of heaven works. And Jesus' question is, will we accept it? Well, as we conclude, three final comments. First, a word about wealth. I've really wrestled with whether these verses contain a sort of direct warning to the wealthy. I don't want to read one in. I don't want to wriggle out of a challenge. We're, we're generally in a wealthy society. Here are my thoughts. What seems to be clear is that what Jesus says to the man in verse 21 is to expose his inability to save himself. But he does use language that's very similar to Matthew 6, when Jesus teaches directly about money in the kingdom of heaven, this language of treasure in heaven. And in chapter 6, Jesus gives the warning, no one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So when Jesus says only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven, how are we to take that? Is it a warning? Well, I think it may be. Money is not the only thing that we may choose over the salvation Jesus offers, but it certainly can become like a master. It can give us the illusion that we're able to save ourselves. And a love of money, well, that presents a danger to us coming like children, independence on Jesus. And perhaps again, it's verse 21 where it really hits home. We might ask ourselves, well, could I do what Jesus asked the man to do here? And even if I could, am I able then to love God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength? And if the answer is no, which if we're honest it will be, well then it just shows us we need a saviour. And money isn't it. And so this wonderful news, come like a child to Jesus. Sure salvation, blessing in the kingdom, and trust him with our money as we live for his kingdom's sake.
a word about wealth. Second, a word to the self-saviour. Because there may be some here this morning thinking, well, this is just a hard thing to accept. It's hard to accept I can contribute nothing. Our culture bombards us with messages about how humanity can save itself. But to depend on God's word, well, it challenges our pride. It's humbling. And Jesus thinks it's hard to accept. I think that's why he gives us these three angles on it to persuade us. But if we recognize our need for salvation, if we're conscious of sin, well, to keep trying to save ourselves will lead to sorrow. Instead, Jesus turns our thinking on its head. Verse 30, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. It's not about the spiritual CV. In fact, will we put the spiritual CV in the spiritual shredder? It's about our need. And it's about God's grace. Will we cast ourselves like a child on the mercy of Jesus and then know the certainty of eternal life? For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And finally, a word to those needing reassurance. As we live the Christian life, there can be times when we doubt our assurance of eternal life. And that is not an unusual thing. It's not something to be ashamed of. It would be a great thing to talk to a close friend about. And perhaps we find ourselves comparing that ledger of good works or sin in our mind. Or we're thinking thoughts like, I fall so far short. Or I did this or that. And how can God accept me? And here we see Jesus teaching his disciples, knowing that we need reminding of his grace time and time again. And in his love, he reminds us again. Our salvation is not by man. It's all the work of God. We are secure as we come to Jesus. In the words of the song we've just sung, by grace I am redeemed, by grace I am restored, and now I freely walk into the arms of Christ my Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who saves. Thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and has risen from the dead, you have accomplished salvation fully for all who simply come to you like little children to receive it. Thank you that this is the way to eternal life for anybody who will come. And this is the heart of the kingdom of heaven. And so, Father, we ask that you would give us hearts to accept this wonderful news of your grace and no assurance of eternal life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.